Why do we exist? Were we created with a purpose or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. Join us as we seek to see a generation captivated and transformed by the truth of Christianity. This is The Universe Next Door. Sorry I'm late. Uh, for those of you who prayed, thank you so much. Uh, the baby's here. Everything went well. My wife is doing good. We had some blood pressure stuff we had to deal with, so that was terrifying. But uh, she is okay now, thankfully. So everything is going really well. My son, he's one and a half years old. He's adopted uh, adapted well. Well, he hasn't adopted anybody, but he's adapted well. He cannot get enough of his new sister, so that is obviously a great thing. Um, but I'm excited to be back, and I'm excited to continue our series, Laying Down the Law. I know everybody loves to talk about the details of the law, uh, so that's what we're going to be doing. But m- my goal here mainly, as I'd already mentioned, is to help you understand the law better, and a lot of questions are going to come out of that, of course, questions about what the law of God is, what its purpose was, what is the law of Christ, um, what exactly did Christ do with the law when he came to fulfill it. We're going to focus on that today on uh, Matthew 5.17, but we're also going to be kind of looking at how the law came about, when it was given, and why, um, and, and sort of in comparison to other laws as well, like the Code of Hammurabi, for example, or the Code of Hammurabi. I always I always think of that gorilla that got uh, shot, Harambe, and then I mix up the two. I mix up Harambe and Hammurabi. So the Code of Hammurabi and other, there's other codes and laws even older than that, but they're just here in fraction or they've survived through writing. So um, a lot of people will accuse Moses or Judaism of stealing those other laws and, and quote-unquote plagiarizing from those other laws, but we're going to show why that is, uh, I think, nonsense, and we're going to hopefully have a better understanding of not only the law in general, but how a Christian is to view the law today. Because on the other hand, while my view is that we're not under the law, um, the law of God, the Mosaic law, I also, uh, of course, don't want to give you the impression that antinomianism is a view that makes any sense. So we're not we're not going to propose that you're supposed to be lawless, that you're supposed to do whatever you want. And in fact, I think we end up with quite the opposite to that. Um, I think that we have an even f- more full understanding of the love of God and how we're supposed to act in loving our neighbors um, as a result of what Christ has done for us and setting aside the law and also of sending his Holy Spirit to live in us, um, which of course, answers a lot of questions for the believer, but what about the unbeliever? What do we do with the unbeliever in regard to the law? Uh, Are the laws of scripture, the laws of Moses or some variation supposed to be enforced on cultures? And did God design for that to happen? Did he desire for that to happen and and command for that to happen? So there's going to be a lot that comes out of this and it's just going to continue to unfold. I don't, I don't really like the term unpack. I've probably used it, but we're going to, it's going to continue to unfold because there is a lot to this. But today we're going to start with Matthew 5.17, and we're also going to kind of look at, as I said, the history of how the law came about and why it came about. But before we do that, just make sure you hit follow wherever you're listening. Um, There'll be a little follow button or a subscribe button, depending on where you are, Apple, Spotify, Google. There's tons of other podcast websites, too. I think we're on all of them. But wherever you're listening, make sure you hit follow. And also, 
Uh, if you would share an episode with a friend uh, or even share something on social media, that's the best way to get our content out there. That's the best way for us to fulfill our purpose and our goal in helping people understand and defend the gospel and scripture um, and their faith in Christianity. So if you would share either on social media or even an individual episode with somebody, that is the best way to do that because when you um, when you share something and somebody who you trust sees it from you, they're much more likely to check it out and listen to it. Uh, and even if you don't like it, you can say, hey, I hate this guy. Check out how terrible his podcasts are. And then they can kind of make fun of me, but I still get the view. So if you could do that, that would be awesome. And if you have a question, um, whether it has to do with the series or not, it could be something we've talked about on the show. It could be something that uh, you have trouble with in your faith or something you've maybe thought about or would have a hard time answering if somebody else asked you this question, send your question to information at apologetics.org. We're going to do our Q&A this Friday. It's going to come out this Friday. So send it before Friday so that way we can have it in the Q&A for this weekend. But any question you have, send it to information at apologetics.org and we will answer it uh, or respond to it at least in our Q&A this Friday night. It'll be released, I think, at 5 p.m. Um, so make sure to send in your question in. Don't forget, if you have a question, uh, I won't say your name. I won't tell anybody who you are. Don't worry. You will be anonymous. Uh, but just send in your question and uh, we will respond to it Friday night. So like I said, we're going to look at Matthew 5.17 and throughout this, probably this episode and the series, there's going to be a lot of scripture verses Um, That's just natural to this topic. So uh, I I don't mean for it to be overwhelming, but I have a huge list that I'm trying to kind of narrow down for each episode for it to make a little more sense and be organized. But uh, go to Matthew 5 if you have a Bible of some sort uh, with you on your phone, on paper, whatever. Uh, But go to Matthew 5 because that's where we're going to start. And this, of course, is the Sermon on the Mount. And there are a lot of differing views as to whether uh, some scholars think Jesus actually preached the Sermon on the Mount as one big sermon. There are other scholars who think, well, because Matthew is written in <clears throat> in discourses instead of necessarily chronologically, um, that Matthew put all these teachings sort of together here and um, maybe mentioned a Mount because he wanted to to make an allusion to Moses, that Jesus is now the, the new Moses. He's the one giving the new law, quote unquote. Of course, he's not necessarily doing that. Uh, but there's different views on the Sermon on the Mount. I don't, I don't see a very convincing reason not to think that Jesus is just preaching a sermon on a mountain here. Uh, I think that's, that's, a, that's a fine view, and that's probably the view I have as of now. But just know there's a lot of different views in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it's actually a really interesting topic if you ever think to to look into it. But let's go to Matthew 5:17. We're going to start here. Uh, and we'll read this whole we'll read this whole paragraph. We'll read Matthew 5:17 through 20, but 17 is going to be our main focus here. 17 and in 18 too, but in 17 he says, "Do not think, this is Jesus speaking, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them." For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the, from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So there's a lot here. And there's actually a lot underlying that often gets missed. 
Um, and, and like I said, our focus is going to be on 17 and 18, what it means that Jesus came to fulfill the law, and also what it doesn't mean, because we have that he didn't come to abolish it. We'll get into that term. Uh, he didn't come that it would disappear by jots and tittles. Um, and by the way, that's like the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet um, that it's translated from here in verse 18. So not the smallest little piece would fade away. So we, we see how he came to do it. And that's what we're going to focus on. How, what did he come to do and how did he do it? But before we do that, there's also some really important keys in verses 19 and 20. So we see that one of the main uh, characters here, one of the I guess groups underlying what Jesus is saying here are the Pharisees. They're mentioned in 20 that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So we see the Pharisees mentioned here. So we know that Jesus has them in mind when he's, when he's uh, breathing this verse into existence. Okay. He has the Pharisees in mind and that's important because when we see that uh, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly is doing wrong will not uh, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. He's calling out their hypocrisy here because the Pharisees were known um, for not caring about the actual intent of God's law a lot of the time, but they cared more about man-made laws. We talked about this a little bit with the, the Sabbath episode. I'll link that in the description if you haven't listened to it. Um, but that was one of the issues is that they had all these man-made laws they were enforcing on Jesus. That You can't do this on the Sabbath. You can't do that on the Sabbath. You can't heal a man on the Sabbath. When in reality, he wasn't breaking any laws. And in fact, he was keeping the law of love your neighbor that never takes a break. So, Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees here. He has them in mind when he's saying this because they will set aside certain commands. Um, they will set aside certain laws, but then tell people to keep others. And it's sort of this hypocritical practice where they decide what's valuable and invaluable from God. So keep that in mind as we look at this verse. Um, but let's start by looking now at verse 17. So we have a couple things going on. He didn't come to abolish the law. And by the way, it's not just the law. He didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. So both of those are in mind here, not just the law. He didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. And in verse 18, we also see that not a single letter of it would fade away. So there are two things. He didn't come to abolish or to destroy it. He didn't come that it would fade away slowly. Now let's look at that word abolish, uh, because this is actually important, obviously, to our discussion if we're trying to figure out what exactly Jesus did with the law. Uh, but let's look at that word abolish. The Greek word is katalysia. I don't know exactly how to pronounce it. Katalysia. It's two words, kata and lysia. And it's to essentially destroy, to demolish. Um, this term is used in Matthew 26, 61, uh, when Jesus talks about the temple being destroyed. Every stone in, in uh, the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, 2, he says, every stone will be thrown down. So this is the idea of total destruction, right? So he didn't come to destroy the law. And again, the Pharisee, um, the Pharisee context is important here as well, because the Pharisees had uh, a view, and really I think this was a, just a popular Jewish view of the first century in general, uh, that somebody who came to, or, or somebody who would not keep the law was somebody who was abolishing the law. So this is important. If you did not keep the law, if you broke the law, then you're considered to be abolishing the law. So I think we can get two 
two kind of uh, meanings out of this word abolish here that, that Matthew's using, or that Jesus used and Matthew records in verse 17. We see that he didn't come to destroy it or to demolish it, and he also didn't come to break it. So whichever way you understand um, abolish here, Jesus didn't come to do that. He didn't come to demolish it like he came, uh, like he said that the temple would be demolished and he would be the true temple. He didn't come to demolish the law, but he also wasn't going to break the law. And that's, we covered that in the Sabbath episode a little bit too, but he didn't come to do his own thing. He didn't come to, to break the law. He had to keep the law in order to fulfill the law. Um, and there are some who think that that word fulfill, which we're going to get to in a minute, just means that Jesus came to keep the law, and then uh, that way Christians receive his um, his perfection, his righteousness, which is true, but that's not the extent of it. That's not the end of it. He didn't only come to keep the laws we're going to see. So on one hand, he didn't come to destroy or break it. On the other hand, it's not going to fade away um, one little piece at a time. So it's not going to be something where one inch of it at a time just kind of disappears. On the other hand, so he's not going to destroy it. It's not going to go away slowly. What is going to happen, or did happen, is that Jesus came to fulfill the law. Now, this word fulfill is very important. It comes from the Greek word pleru, which is P-L-E-R-O-O in English. Um, And the idea of uh, fulfilling something is to make it full, to make it complete, to finish it, to execute it. Um, That is the idea of this term used here. Or rather, it comes from uh, pleru. The actual term is pleurisai. But it's that idea of executing something, finishing something, completing something. So when we look at this term fulfill, um, this is something that's helpful anytime you're studying scripture, anytime you're trying to understand terminology. If you're going to do a word study, the first thing you want to do is look at a concordance or look at how else this word is used, if it's used elsewhere. Now, there are times where this doesn't happen and we just can't do this. For example, I think at 1 Timothy 2.12, the word for authority there is actually a word that's not used elsewhere in that way in Scripture. So people either have to kind of look at cultural writings, they have to look at Greek outside of the Bible to figure it out. But most of the time, when you find a key word, you can get a concordance, you can look at uh, Bible dictionary, and you can see where else this word is used so you can see how it's used and see its intended meaning. Well, thankfully for us, uh, this term, this Greek term for fulfill here, is actually used in different variations almost 20 times in the book of Matthew alone. I think it's 17 times, and it's also used in the other Gospels. But it's important that Matthew uses it very often, because Matthew's the author here in chapter 7, or I'm sorry, in chapter 5, in 5.17. So Matthew uses it elsewhere, and it helps us to understand what this term actually means. And we're not going to do a whole entire study on this word throughout Matthew, but we are going to look at a couple examples um, that I think are really important. One of them is in Matthew 3.15. Um, if you go to Matthew 3.15, this is when Jesus is being baptized. And it says, uh, Jesus replied, this is when, when John says, I need to be baptized by you. Why do you come to me? Jesus says in, in Matthew 3.15, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus is being baptized. That same word, the same Greek word for fulfill is used here, to fulfill all righteousness. Well, Jesus is going to fulfill all righteousness. He's not going to fulfill some righteousness. He's not just going to be uh, righteous in this situation and then move on. He's going to fulfill all righteousness. He's going to complete it. He's going to execute it. 
Um, now, another example is when we look at uh, Matthew one twenty-two. This is, a, I think, a pretty simple one to grasp, too. Let's go to Matthew one twenty-two, And this is, uh, it says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So he's he's using the term fulfill here to say when Jesus was born of a virgin, when Jesus would be born of a virgin, rather, this is going to fulfill Isaiah 7.14. It's completely fulfilled now, right? Jesus is going to fulfill it. He's going to complete that prophecy. And remember, he didn't just come to fulfill the law, but the law and the prophets. So he's going to completely fulfill uh, this prophecy that was given hundreds of years earlier, 700 some odd years uh, earlier in the book of Isaiah. So he's going to completely fulfill it. Um, let's look at one more. Well, yeah, we'll look at one more. I'll, I'll at least mention in Matthew 2.15, you see the same thing when Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy in Hosea that he would come out of Egypt. Now, of course, Jesus is leading a second exodus, a true exodus. Um, This time he's leading his people to the kingdom of heaven, the everlasting kingdom, rather than um, Canaan, which, or Israel, which would have been a shadow, a picture, but it wasn't actually an eternal, an eternal paradise. So this time Jesus is coming out of the true exodus and he's leading people to the kingdom of God. But it's that same term there used again. He fulfills what Hosea prophesied. He completely fulfilled it. But let's look at Matthew 26, uh, 56, and this will be just our last example of this. In Matthew 26, 56, Jesus is reading and he says, but this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. So this, of course, is when um, Jesus is being tried and persecuted and now they're um, what's the exact, this is when, yeah, so this is when he's before the Sanhedrin or the Sanhedrin. Um, and of course, his disciples are terrified because they don't want to go to jail. They they deny him, they hide. Um, but Jesus says this is done to fulfill, to fulfill what was said. So it's that same term again. He's actually fulfilling, fulfilling scripture. Um, he's fulfilling prophecy, what the prophet said. So this term fulfill It's not an isolated term. We don't have to guess at how it's used because we see how it's used throughout the book of Matthew. That that was just a number of examples. There are many more um, where variations of of this word are used in the book of Matthew, but you get the point. It means to actually complete. So Jesus came to complete the law, to make full the law. He didn't, he, he's not abolishing it. He's not destroying it. He's not breaking it, but he is fulfilling it. Uh, and if we look at Romans 10.4, let's pull up Romans 10.4 real quick. I told you there'd be a lot of verses, but, um, <laughs> so sorry. But Romans 10.4, we see that Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. So Christ is the culmination of the law, the end of the law. We'll see another verse from Paul momentarily in Ephesians 2, but we see here that Christ is the end or the culmination of the law. He is the end of it. He came to end it. He came to complete it. He came to fulfill it. He didn't just come to keep it um, and and then it's still binding on everybody. He came to fulfill the law. Um, so let's pause here for a minute and then we'll look at, I hope I don't forget, but we'll look at the Ephesians 2.15 passage. Um, this is important because when we think about the purpose of the law and we think about when the law was given, well, when was the law given? When do we see it introduced? In Exodus 19 and 20. 
And of course, in Exodus 20, you have the Ten Commandments. And from there, for the next couple of books, you have laws scattered all over the place. Um, There's not just this neat section of all 613 commands or statutes listed in order. You have to go and grab them from different books in different places. Um, It's just how the law is, is written out and given. So the law is given in Exodus 19 and going forward. Um, But that is when the Israelites, the Jewish people, came out of Egypt. So think about it. When they were living in Egypt for 400 years, they would have been under Egyptian law. So they didn't have the law of God yet. And keep that in mind. This doesn't mean that um, there's no eternal aspect to the law of God. Of course there is, and we're going to get to that too. Um, But it does mean that God's law was given in a specific time to a specific people in a specific place. You can't deny that much. You could try to say, well, yeah, it was given uh, to a specific people, time, and place, but it was meant to be forever or something like that. You could try to make that argument. I disagree with it, and we'll see why um, pretty vastly. But you have to at least say it was given to a specific people in a specific time in a specific place. Um, Of course, Israel, the nation of Israel technically began all the way back in Genesis 12 with Abram, but the nation had to develop and build. And if you remember, I think it was only 70 people went to um, to Egypt in the time of Jacob or in the time of um, Joseph. But when they get to Egypt, of course, they keep growing and growing and growing, and then they're enslaved. They're there for 400 years, so they grow so big that if you take the um, the literal reading of Exodus, there were 2 million people likely that left uh, Egypt. And of course, this this crashed Egypt's economy. There's all kinds of historical stuff you can look at with that too. I'll link an descri- uh, episode in the description I did with Tim Mahoney um, almost a year ago now. That's weird. It was last fall. But they leave Egypt. They have this huge group. They're now coming out and they need laws as a new nation. Now, the difference is this time God's going to give them their law. Uh, when you look at the other nations around them, they do have laws. Uh, like I mentioned, one of the most obvious and, and well-known is the Code of Hammurabi. Um, this is actually one of the this is actually one of the oldest, nearly complete uh, sets of laws that we have in the world. And what you'll see, and what people often point out, that makes Christians uncomfortable, though I don't think it should, is that the Code of Hammurabi has a lot in common with the laws of Israel. Um, let's just pull up, we'll pull it up real quick and read a couple of them. There's also a lot of differences, but it has a lot in common. Um, so the let's just read a few. One of them is, if anyone ensnare another, putting a ban upon him, but he cannot prove it, then he that ensnared him, or ensnared him shall be put to death. Uh, let's look at another one. If anyone bring an accusation of any crime before the elders and does not prove what he has charged, he shall, if it be a capital offense charged, be put to death. Well, Israel had the same law. And in fact, the commandment, do not uh, bear false witness. This is actually the context of that commandment. Uh, most people don't know that. But the context of this commandment is co- a court setting. And the reason was that if you're going to bear false witness, somebody might lose their freedom or lose their life even because of you bearing false witness. And this is why they needed two or three witnesses. And this is why, just like we see in the Code of Hammurabi here, This is why when somebody were to go to court and bear false witness, if they were to lie, then the punishment that they lied about toward the other person, if they were caught, if they were caught lying and and verified to be lying, that punishment will be brought on them. So if you were accusing somebody else of a crime, uh, let's say murder, 
And actually, they didn't do it, and you know they didn't do it, and you get caught accusing them of something they didn't really do in court. You're going to receive the death penalty. So they took this very seriously, but this is something we see hundreds of years earlier in the in the Code of Hammurabi. And if you go through, I'm not going to go through each one. That's not the purpose of this episode. Um, but there are a lot of similarities with the Code of Hammurabi. Um, there are tons of similarities. And this, this, of course, was written, as I said, hundreds of years before Israel was given the law. Um, this was written from Babylon. Hammurabi was the, the, the first well-known emperor of Babylon. He pretty much began to make Babylon what it was in the world. He spread its influence. And um, <clears throat> so this was, this was much older than the laws that Israel was given. Um, and a lot of time people are thrown off by this, but I don't think we should be. I mean, do you think the Israelites were aliens? Like, do you think they just came from some other planet or some other dimension and had nothing in common with anybody else? Of course, why would God give them an entirely new set of laws? Remember, he's giving it to a specific people in a specific place. Now, there there are many differences, and um, maybe we can do an episode where we go through those differences. But we should expect to see Israel have stuff in common with the nations around them. Uh, we should expect to see uh, some of these laws reiterated, some of these laws kept. These are the laws that they knew prior. I mean, there's no reason why they would have just abandoned them all and started from scratch. This is, you know, there there are 613 commandments. It's not like every every single one of them needs to be a brand new thing. So I don't know why people get so worked up about it. I think that we should be seeing stuff in common with other nations. I think that if we didn't, it would be suspicious. And it's the same with creation narratives. It's the same with, uh, and we're going to get into that in the fall, by the way. And we're going to be talking a lot about Genesis 1 through 11, maybe Psalm 74, which is another creation narrative. Uh, but you're going to see a lot of this in the Old Testament. And I think there's very good reason for it. They were they were surrounded by these other cultures. They came from these other cultures. They weren't aliens. They didn't just poof into existence with nothing. Um, and And you have to remember, when you look at laws here, God was not giving them laws as though this was Eden. He wasn't giving them laws as though they're now in heaven um, and this is God's final end for the Israelites. That's not what was happening. They're in Israel. They're they're on earth. They're not in Eden. They don't have perfection. They don't have perfect uh, everything. God gave the law to a specific people in a specific place to govern them. The law is not the gospel, okay? The law wasn't going to save anybody. The law wasn't going to perfect anybody. It would do quite the opposite. So they're not in Eden. They're in anti-Eden. Eden was destroyed with the fall, and Eden's coming again at the end of the Bible. God's going to bring us back there um, through Christ. But this isn't Eden. It, it was never intended to be. And that's why when you see laws about slavery, for example, yes, slavery was much different than it is today. In fact, in, in Exodus, we see that um, one of the laws tells us if you were to kidnap, well, that's punishable by capital punishment. You would be killed for kidnapping. So it's much different than the African slave trade. It was closer to indentured servitude, but it's still some form of slavery. Do you think that's God's intention for humanity, for, for paradise, for all of eternity? No, of course not. This is temporary. He's giving them laws, temporary laws, based off of something eternal. We'll see that in a few minutes. But he's giving them temporary laws to live where they are and to govern where they are. He wasn't starting a whole new world. He wasn't, he wasn't starting the kingdom of heaven on earth. He was creating a people that he had to govern, that he had to keep at bay, that he had to use to proclaim his name and, and, until the Messiah comes through that line and he puts an end to the law. The law had an expiration date. Um, we're going to see that in a minute too. 
but the law had an expiration date. So he gives it to them after they come out of Egypt, now that they've, they're, they're forming their new nation. They're, they're finally going to get their own place, uh, and God uses them, not because they're great, not because he needs to, but because they're small and insignificant. That's what he tells us. He wants to use Israel because they're small and insignificant. Um, so he gives them that law to be governed. He gives them that law. And after Babylon, um, after they went into exile, they used this as a way to kind of relate to God, which isn't all bad, but then it turned into legalism. It turned into them taking one law and extending it to make 39 laws out of it or whatever it might be. Um, so it ends up actually kind of backfiring and pushing them even further away from God by the time we get to the first century. Um, but this is kind of just an overview so that we know what's going on here. That's when the law was given. It was given for a specific people and place and time. It's interesting that when you look at Psalm 89, uh, this is verse 34. God says, my covenant I will not, or my covenant will I not break, uh, nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. So he says, I will not break my covenant, that uh, covenant that he gave to Israel. He's not going to break it. So it's the same kind of language used in Matthew 5.17. He's not going to break his covenant, but he did bring in a new covenant. And the new covenant made the, the old covenant obsolete, as we see in Hebrews. Why? Because the old covenant was just a shadow of what was going to come. It was just a shadow. Now we have the substance in Christ. So the he, he came and he brought a new covenant but that doesn't mean he broke his old covenant. God kept his old covenant, and now Christ has come to complete it and bring a new covenant. <clears throat> Included in that old covenant was the law of Moses. So this is something that I think is crucial to understand. Jesus fulfilling and completing and setting aside the law does not mean that he broke the law. And it does not mean that he abolished the law. And it does not mean that the law faded away. It means it has been completed, it has been fulfilled, it is finished. That's what we have to understand, first of all, um, in regard to the law. Now, let's look at that Ephesians 2 uh, passage that we talked about. This is Ephesians 2, and if we look at verse, well, let's start at verse 14, and we'll read 15. Um, Paul says, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and who's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity of the two, thus making peace. And reconciling us on the cross is what he says next. Um, so what he says here in verse 15 is that he's set aside the law. He says he's done this by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. So he has set aside the law. He didn't abolish it, but he set it aside after he completed it. And why did he set it aside? Because it was temporary. It was given to a specific people in a specific place. You can kind of look at the law as um, sort of like, like a friend of mine likes to say, like training wheels. The law was like training wheels for Israel. They didn't have the full picture yet. They didn't have the substance. They only had the shadow. So these are training wheels to help them behave, to help them see God, to help them uh, conduct themselves like the nation they're supposed to conduct themselves as, which they didn't for the most part, by the way. But that's kind of what the law was for them. It was like training wheels. And these training wheels weren't given to all of the other nations. Um, I think I read this verse in one of my episodes fairly recently. But if actually, if we look at Psalm 147, 
Um, this is Psalm 147, verses 19 and 20. It says, He has revealed his word to Jacob, his laws and decrees to Israel. He has done this for no other nation. They do not know his laws. Now, let's talk about that for a minute because that's important. Um, we see, first of all, that the law, again, this tells us explicitly, there is no way around this. <laughs> the law was not given to all the nations. It wasn't given to everybody, nor was it uh, was it commanded that anybody take the law all over the place. Instead, what it says here is he gave the law to Israel. He gave, he revealed his laws and decrees to Israel. But it also says he's done this for no other nation. So first of all, no other nation has the laws. They were specifically for Israel. So if you might be thinking, well, okay, I get it. He fulfilled the law for the Christian believer, but what, are, what about everybody else? Well, everybody else didn't have the law. Nobody else had the law. Now, they did have laws. Remember, Psalm 147, verse 20 says, they did, not, they did not know his laws. Well, they still had laws. We just saw they have laws um, that were written prior to the law of Moses. Um, but that's because of what C.S. Lewis refers to as the Tao. Um, he's, it's spelled T-A-O, but it's pronounced Tao with like a D sound. And the Tao is this idea of universal principles, of universal truth, of objective morality that is ever binding. And the way that you can describe this um, is if you talk to somebody, let's say, for example, who uh, subscribes to Darwinian evolution, well, chances are their view is going to be something along the lines of uh, morality is something that came about through evolution. It's a way for um, it's a way for the human race to survive, to keep pushing survival, to keep pushing uh, progress, whatever that may mean. And so morality is just sort of a product of this to help people live together because it's for the greater, uh, whether or not they use the word good, for the greater purpose, for the greater uh, binding together, for the greater growth of the human race. Um, so there's this view that morality comes from within humanity. Uh, morality comes from within community. But the Tao, this idea of universally binding, eternally binding principles, this comes and is transcendent to humanity. It comes from God to humanity. It doesn't come from humanity. It isn't a product of humanity. Well, I think very good evidence for this, aside from the fact that we know that right and wrong exists, from the fact that we have a conscience, is that we see laws in other nations that are fairly similar to the laws of God, to the law that was given to Moses. And again, they're not exactly the same. Yes, they would have been familiar with these. But the fact that these existed prior um, in writing, first of all, and then second of all, not in writing, which we'll talk about a little bit. But the fact that these these laws existed in other nations that were fairly moral a lot of the time, pretty moral a lot of the time, very similar to Israel. It shows that there is knowledge of this Tao, of this understanding of transcendent good, of transcendent um universal principles and absolutes that don't change from culture to culture. For example, murdering, for example, stealing. Um, these are things that, like you see in the Ten Commandments, these are universal principles, the Tao, um, as it's called. And it's it's the Tao is actually, <clears throat> it's an Asian term because we see the same kind of concept in Hinduism and Buddhism. And we also see it in Islam. Uh, well, of course, that derived from Judaism, but we see it in Judaism. We see it in other ancient Near Eastern cultures. We see it all over the place. Because it's a universally, uh, it's universally binding. It's eternally binding. These always exist, and the reason they're eternally binding and universal, uh, universal in nature is because they are the very nature of God. Goodness is the very nature of God. 
I think we also mentioned the Euthyphro dilemma, but that's the old dilemma that says, do the gods will something because it's good, or is something good because the gods will it? In other words, there's supposed to be this standard of good apart from God, where, well, if something is good, then God's going to call it good, um, but that makes a standard of good uh, exist apart from God. Or somebody can say, well, you know, God just kind of arbitrarily chooses what is good, but whatever he calls good becomes good. Well, this helps us understand because both of these are unnecessary. This is a false dilemma. God is the good. His very nature is the good. And the laws are an extension of his nature. The laws, you can kind of picture the laws um, like sort of like rays shining into different periods. Okay, but they all come from the same source. There's this absolute, um, these moral absolutes. There's this, this universal, objective, transcendent, Um, sort of understanding of what good is that doesn't come from within humanity. It comes from above humanity. And actually, if you haven't read Abolition of Man, by the way, um, you need to read it. It, Put it on like your top one for reading. Uh, C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man is one of the best short defenses uh, of, of universal principles. It's like, it's less than a hundred pages and you can probably get it for a few dollars. It might even be free if you have scribbed or audiobook or whatever. Um, But read that if you haven't, it's incredible. So you have this idea of the Tao that's binding on all people of all time, and we see evidence of that in all these different laws, written laws. But what you also have in Scripture um, recorded is you have people early on understanding specifics of what God wanted, even though they did not, they didn't yet have the written law as far as we're concerned. So remember, when was the written law given to Moses? After Egypt, in Exodus 19 and forward. So it wasn't always it wasn't uh, always written down. It was written down at a certain point after they left Egypt. But when you look at what's going on before Egypt, you have a number of things that are very specific to what God wants um, that people are keeping or not keeping. <clears throat> so, for example, when you look at Cain and Abel, well, Cain offers a sacrifice God doesn't care for. Abel offers one that he does care for. And this is a concept that you see throughout the Old Testament. Well, how do they know? How did they know what God wanted? Well, at this point, we're kind of left to speculation. Um, how, there are some people who will say, well, God must have revealed the law to them too, or some sort of law. Well, yeah, that could be true, but that's left to speculation. Uh, my speculation, <laughs> which we won't spend much time on because, again, it's speculation. But my speculation is that when you look at, for example, um, the very first people to be created, and then the list goes onward. When you look at the genealogy in Matthew 5, um, the first genealogy in the Bible, you see that people lived for nearly a thousand years, and then that slowly decreased over time. Um, and my, my uh, inclination is that this is because sin in genetics and elsewhere began to become more and more and more prevalent as time went on. So the people who were closest to the fall, or in other words, closest to the pre-fall, right, closest to prior to the fall, Adam and Eve, well, they lived very long, uh, and then the people right after them also lived very long, and then it slowly started going downhill, and I'm inclined to think it has to do with sin mingling with genetics, um, continuing to spread and spread and spread like a cancer, and so they continue to have shorter and shorter and shorter lifespans as you go throughout the Old Testament for the most part. Well, I think it's the same thing. Again, this is my speculation. But I think it's the same thing with this understanding of the moral law, this understanding of the Tao, that the people who were closest to God in the garden, closest to the pre-fall, 
would have had the best understanding of the particulars that God wanted. So Cain and Abel are very early on. Clearly, you see Abel has an understanding of what God wants from a sacrifice, um, and you have clearly Cain understanding this too, but not wanting to do it. And you also see this as you go through Genesis 1 through 11, um, you see that they seem to have a lot of specific understandings of what God wanted. Well, I think this is because they were closer to the source. As sin began to eat away, as sin began to spread, I think it continued to, <clears throat> I think it continued to kind of uh, push people away. As Paul says, our consciences are seared. So searing takes time. I think it's like uh, the people at the beginning, well, you just threw the steak on, right? It's like just barely starting to sizzle. But then the people a thousand years later, that thing's like sizzling now. <laughs> okay, it's starting to cook through. Um, and so that's my inclination. That's my uh, speculation interestingly enough, but all that to say, you still have to deal with that too. How did the people before the written law know what God wanted? Not just in terms of not killing, which Cain and Abel also dealt with, not just in terms of not stealing or, um, you know, that kind of thing, but, but in terms of like specific sacrifices, you have Abram making sacrifices. You have Noah making a sacrifice right when he gets off the ark, even though he wasn't commanded to do that as far as we're concerned in the written, um, scriptures. So that's another interesting thought as well. But it's important that we have this understanding of the Tao, because while the the Tao is eternal, while God's goodness is eternal, it can be reflected in different ways throughout history. Like the slavery example we gave earlier, I think is helpful because you have laws pertaining to slavery. And even in the New Testament, you have, uh, if you look at the book of Philemon, you have a runaway slave who Paul encourages to go back to his owner. He encourages him to go back and he, he encourages the owner to treat him with respect or master to treat him with respect. You see the same thing in um, in First Peter 2, that a slave is encouraged even to suffer at the hands of his master to do the right thing before the Lord. But at the same time, we know according to Galatians 3.28 that in Christ, there is no slave or free. So in heaven, this isn't going to be a reality. There's not going to be people who, who are slaves to other people. This is temporary. God gave temporary laws to a temporary people in a temporary place to help order them, to help bring about his ultimate purpose. Israel was not Eden. And we are not Israel in the sense that Israel was ethnic, ethnic national Israel. The church is Israel in the true sense that we've been grafted in, that we are in Christ, in God. But we are not Israel in the sense of uh, the national, the nation of Israel, the ethnic Israel. Well, I guess some of you are probably ethnic Israel if you're Jewish, but uh, we're not the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is, is no longer. So Christ comes, according to Galatians 4.4, 4, in the fullness of time. And what does he do? Like we just said in Ephesians 2.15 a few minutes ago, he sets aside the law. If he set, he set aside the law, period, not just for the believer. Remember, the, the Gentiles didn't even have the law. And in Romans 2, I, I think it's 2.12, we see that when they, they keep the law, not knowing the law, they're a law unto themselves. They're, they're showing that they know the law, that the law is written on their hearts, even though they don't have the written law. So the other nations were not given the written law. This was for Israel. And Christ came to complete it. He came to complete the entirety of the old covenant. Now let's look at, uh, we'll jump over to, I feel like there's something I'm forgetting, but I don't know. We'll jump over to Hebrews 
Um, and this is Hebrews. If we look at uh, chapter 10, um, let's start in verse 1. He says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. So the law existed in part as a shadow of the things to come to show us a glimpse of the things to come. But Christ is uh, the reality. And here we see in the, in the following verses that Christ is actually the one who is going to fulfill the sacrificial system. <clears throat> it's not... Uh, it's, it's not as though the sacrificial system on its own was ever intended to forgive sins. It wasn't. Look at verse 4. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It was never intended to do this. But what Christ comes is he comes and he fulfills the true intention. If you look at verse 9, he says, Then he said, Here I am, I've come to do your will. He's come to fulfill this. And it says, He sets aside the first to establish the second. So he sets aside the first to establish the second. He came and he fulfilled the first covenant. He fulfilled the law. He fulfilled all of the sacrificial system, all of the um, ceremonial system, all of the civil laws. He fulfilled everything. And he came and he set it aside to establish the new and better covenant. Not just new. Remember, it's the new and better covenant. It is better than the last covenant that they had, the old covenant that's been fulfilled. So he didn't come to patch the old covenant. He didn't come to put new wine in old wineskins. The old wineskins are fulfilled. They're done. He is coming and bringing a full new covenant, has brought fully a new covenant. And he, in order to do this, he had to completely fill or fulfill the first covenant. And that's exactly what he did. So let's look at Matthew 5, uh, Matthew 5 one more time. We'll look at Matthew 5.17. And with all of this in mind... Um, Let's read again Matthew 5.17. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish or destroy the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. It's been accomplished. Okay, it's been accomplished on our behalf. It's been accomplished for us. That's why in the cross, Christ Christ says that this is finished. And again, most Christians would believe, uh, agree with this. They might say, well, by fulfill, you know, Jesus just came to keep the law for Christian believers, and therefore we're given his righteousness. Well, yeah, that's true, but that's not the extent of it. He fulfilled the law. The law was not for those outside of Israel. The law was for a specific time and a specific place, and Christ comes in the fullness of time, to complete the law, to execute not only everything that had to be done in regard to the law, to keep it perfectly, he did that, but he came to fulfill it. He came to complete it. He came to set it aside, as we see Paul tells us. So, does this mean that we're supposed to live lawlessly? Does this mean that antinomianism is a viable view? Does does this mean that uh, obeying God doesn't matter? Well, you're going to have to join next week to find out. The answer is no. But you're going to have to come back next week to know why the answer is no and what we are actually supposed to be doing because now we're under the law of Christ. 
So what does that mean? What am I supposed to make of that? What is the royal law? Uh, what, <clears throat> what, what are we supposed to make of the law of Christ? We're going to look throughout the New Testament. We're going to see exactly uh, what it is that we are supposed to understand in regard to the law today, in regard to Christ, in regard to the gospel, in regard to uh, being in Christ as believers, as Christians. So we're going to cover that next week. There's a ton more verses. Trust me, we've only scratched the surface. All we did today is lay the foundation for the law. We didn't even finish completely defining um, what the law is exactly. But we're going to continue next week, and we're going to get deeper into it. So it's only going to get better. Make sure to join us next Monday at 6 p.m. on The Universe Next Door.